Well, most of you know probably that uh, here at Grace, we like to work through books of the Bible. And we took a little bit of a break for that for Christmas. Uh, We'll occasionally take a break to do something more topical or a mini-series. But for the most part, I like to pick a book of the Bible and kind of work through it. And one of the things that that does is that forces us to deal with some of the more difficult passages in the Bible. It forces us to deal with things we might like to kind of skip over and not think too much about. And so I was, I was looking ahead this week to, to the passages that are coming up as we approach our particularization service in three weeks. And here's what we got. Uh, this week we have a warning from Jesus about God coming and destroying the tenant farmers uh, of his vineyard. Next week, we're going to talk about politics and taxes. And then the week after that, Jesus is going to tell us that the dead neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So that means that today I give, get to give you a warning Next week, I get to tell you to pay your taxes. And the week after that, I get to tell you that there's not going to be any more marriage in the new heavens and the new earth, so enjoy marriage now. Uh, And it'll be a miracle if anybody's still here for the particularization service after (laughs) after all of that. So we'll we'll see how all this goes. But today, we we get this warning about unbelief, about unbelief. Uh, and we didn't meet last week. I wasn't here January 1st, so this is kind of the, the New Year's sermon for me. And I, I honestly was a little bummed uh, to be starting with a warning uh, in the new year. But if you think about it, the new year is this time of year when we make resolutions, when we examine our lives, we think about things we want to change. So maybe this text will be helpful to you in doing some self-examination uh, this morning. So that said... Mark chapter 11, uh, verse 27 is where we are, and you can find this printed in your bulletin. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him. 
and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told, had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we uh, approach your word this morning, I pray that you would help me to, to handle it carefully. I pray that you would uh, speak to us now uh, through the words that I use, that you would speak over and above them if you need to. Uh, but I pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's four things I want us to, to think about from the text as we look at this this morning. I want us to see God's desire for us, God's kindness to us, God's warning to us, uh, and then our hope. So first of all, God's desire. Uh, chapter 12 here, Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard. And it would have connected with the people who heard this parable because in that day it was common for owners of land to go away and leave the care of their land uh, in, in the hands of tenant farmers. Uh, it would also have resonated with them because all through the Old Testament, God's people were referred to as His vineyard. Let me read um, one passage that will show you this. This is from Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And I won't read the rest of that, but you see this idea that the, of God's people being his vineyard. Uh, and so we see in this that God sets apart his people as his treasure possession, as his vineyard, and he provides for them. We see also that he raises up religious leaders to, to tend and to care for this vineyard, to care for his people. And then finally we see what God expects from this vineyard, what God desires from his people. And what does he expect? He expects fruit. He expects fruit. He expects his people to love him and to obey him and to be like him. So God's providing for his vineyard. He's caring for his vineyard. He's expecting this vineyard to produce good fruit. And that expectation is the same for us today. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if the beginning of the year is that time of the year when we kind of we, we do our New Year's resolutions and we say, you know, I need, to, I need to eat better this year. I need to get in shape. I need to drop a few pounds. I need to spend more time with the kids. I need to get on top of the budget this year. Uh, and, and God is the one who expects our lives to be bearing fruit and I think the beginning of the year is a very good time for us to take inventory of how we're doing spiritually. Uh, and, and y'all, I love the quote that says, for every uh, one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. But sometimes you do have to take that one look at yourself. 
And so that's a little bit what I think this text leads us to do. What are some questions we might ask ourselves if we're going to be given a spiritual checkup? And I had these all printed out for you, and then I left them at home. So, so, so try to, to follow with me. I'll, I'll post them on our, um, or I'll email them this week or bring them next week. But here's some questions you might ask yourself. Um, how are you doing with the, with the spiritual disciplines? Are you, are you praying for and with your family? Secondly, uh, how are you doing with your besetting sins? How are you doing with the things that you struggle with? Are you confessing? Are you repenting? Are you finding people who will hold you accountable? Uh, thirdly, is, is your life producing the fruit of the Spirit? Are, are you willing to sit down and pray through that list of the fruit of the Spirit and, and honestly think about how you're doing? Are you willing to do that with your spouse or with a friend and say, how do you think I'm doing? Is my life producing these fruit of the Spirit? And are you willing to get feedback? Uh, a fourth question, do you love Jesus? Or is this just kind of all religious busyness? Or a way to instill a few good morals, hopefully, in your children? Have you, have you stopped doing anything simply because you love Jesus? Like otherwise you would absolutely keep doing it, but because you love Jesus, you've quit doing that. Have you started doing anything? Something you ordinarily wouldn't do because you love Jesus. Uh, David Powelson has a book called Seeing with New Eyes, and he has this list of questions he called x-ray questions, which help us get beneath kind of the obvious behavioral sins and, and begin to look at what the, the idols in our lives are. And, and I'll just read a, a few of these to you. Some of the questions you can ask are, what do you want, desire, crave, and wish for? Where do you bank your hopes? What do you fear? What do you feel like doing? Are you always driven by what you feel like doing? What are your plans, agendas, strategies, and intentions designed to accomplish? What makes you tick? What fountain of life, hope, and delight do you drink from? Where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape? Whom must you please? Whose coming into political power would make everything better? Whose victory would make your life happy? What do you feel entitled to? What do you think about most often? Where do you find your identity? I know you're not going to remember all those, but I'll I'll bring those next week or email them. Just some questions for you to think about. Okay, how am I doing in sort of obvious areas? I can sit down with the, with the fruit of the Spirit, think through how I'm doing with that. And then use these questions to go a little bit deeper to see what's really driving me at a heart level. What's really motivating me? Who am I really serving? Uh, God's desire, God's expectation for us is that we bear fruit. And so we would do ourselves well to, to examine our lives and say, well, am I bearing fruit? And if not, why am I not bearing fruit? Secondly, I think we've seen this God's kindness. God's kindness. Uh, We're told in this parable that the owner of the vineyard continually sent servants uh, to to the vineyard to to get some of the fruit from the tenants. But at first they beat them and they sent them away empty-handed. And so they, they sent another, and they, and they struck him on the head and sent him away shamefully. So the owner sent another one, and they killed him. And he sent others, and they killed them. And finally he sent his son, and they killed him as well. It's pretty clear that this is a, a reference to the Old Testament prophets that God sent to his people who were continually rejected. 
Uh, Elijah in the Old Testament was driven into the wilderness. Zechariah was stoned to death near the altar. Uh, Hebrews 11 talks about this and says they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The servants that the owner sent continued to be mistreated, and yet the owner continued to send them until finally he sent his son. He sent his beloved son. And I think this is a picture of of God's kindness in that while we reject his word, God continues to pursue us. And he continues to send people into our lives with his word. He continues to, to offer forgiveness to us. He continues to call us to repentance. Martin Luther wrote, If I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. And yet... John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, in Les Mis, Jean Valjean has been paroled after serving 19 years of hard labor. Uh, and he goes to the house of a bishop and he tells him his story. And he says, they let me out four days ago I'm on parole. I'm very dangerous. And the bishop says, you're welcome to come into our house and eat. And he's kind of taken about it. He's like, are you sure? Are you sure you want me in your house? He says, come, come into our house and eat. He's floored that the bishop would invite him as his convict into his home to eat. And yet the way he repays the bishop the next morning is he sneaks off with the silver in his sack as he leaves the bishop's house. He was shown kindness and mercy, and yet he responded by stealing from the one who had shown him kindness and mercy. And I was thinking there's so many ways in which God shows us kindness and mercy, and are we also guilty of throwing the silver in our bag as we sneak off with it and despising that kindness and mercy. Romans 2, Paul puts it this way, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That that kindness that God shows us is meant to lead us to repentance. He is kind, he is compassionate, he is loving, he is patient. But that kindness is intended to lead us to repent us, to leave us to love him, to lead us to love our neighbor. And so I'd simply ask you this morning, have you thought about the kindness of God to you? And what effect is that having on how you live your life? You know, maybe, maybe he sent you messenger after messenger after messenger. Maybe it's through sitting out of the preaching of the word. Maybe it's people in your life who have kindly confronted you and he keeps sending you messengers are are you responding to those messages are you responding to his entreaty to repent are you producing fruit in response to the kindness of God we see God's desire that we would produce fruit we see his kindness in continuing to call us to repentance but then there's a warning here uh the owner of the vineyard, he finally sends his son. 
his beloved son, and, and they kill him as well. What's he going to do about that? Uh, verse 9, he will come down and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Verse 12 tells us the religious leaders knew that he was talking about them. And so I think what we have here is a not so thinly veiled prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem, of the bringing down of the religious leadership of Jesus' day, and the raising up of others to tend the vineyard of the Lord. So how, do we, how does that apply to us? How does that apply to us today? Uh, first of all, I think this is a warning to those who are in positions of religious leadership. That those of us in positions of religious leadership have a solemn responsibility to tend the vineyard of the Lord. That God expects the vineyard in our care to produce fruit. And so that means that these guys that you have elected as elders, Thomas White and Jim O'Donnell, John Wright and myself, are responsible for doing everything in our power to see that this vineyard, that this congregation (coughs) flourishes spiritually. But it's also a call for us, to us, as a people of God, to respond to that leadership. To respond to those that God has placed over us to shepherd us. Uh, as, as we hear the word, as we hear admonitions, we're called to respond to that and, and to put these things into practice and to, put, and to bear fruit in our own lives. And so that means that the leaders of grace need to be praying for the people of grace people of grace also need to be praying for the leadership of grace and this responsibility that they carry. And I think it's a warning also just to all of us that God expects this vineyard, He expects His church to bear fruit. Um, If you've got a Bible with me, turn over to Romans 11. I think this will kind of help see how this might apply to us a little more today. Uh, Romans chapter 11 Paul is talking about the fact that the Jewish leaders, along with many of the Jewish people, didn't respond to the gospel. And the result is that God has has pruned them out of the tree like a branch. Like, here's this nourishing tree, and they've been cut out of it. And the Gentiles who have responded to the preaching of the gospel have been grafted in to the tree. And he's warning the Gentiles, though, that just like the Jewish people had been cut out, we can be cut out as well. Listen to what he says, uh, verse 13. Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, insomuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you 
provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. That's an interesting passage. And he's saying, you've been, they were cut out because of unbelief. You've been grafted in because of belief. Don't think that you can be cut off because of unbelief as well. And the question arises then, how does this fit in with this idea of, well, I thought once saved, always saved. How does this fit in with this idea of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that those God, those God predestined, He also justified, and those God justified, He also glorified. Isn't my salvation certain if I'm a believer? What is, what is Paul talking about cutting people out of the tree? And I think what we need to realize is that there is a difference between faith and presumption. There's a difference between faith and presumption. What was the problem of of many of the Jewish people? They thought that they were the choice people. They said, well, I'm Abraham's descendant. I can live however I want to and still be okay. And that's not faith. That's presuming on God's grace. Now, people who claim to be Christians, we can do that as well. We can presume on God's grace. We can say, well... I said a prayer back in 84. Or I walked the aisle those, those four times at that church I used to go to. I go to church on a regular basis. It, it doesn't really matter what I do the rest of the week. I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm in. And you know, the reality is someone who is really a Christian, who has truly been converted, they will continue to believe the gospel. Yes, they will struggle with sin. Yes, they will stray at times. But, but if you really believe the gospel, you will see your sin and hate your sin and begin to struggle with it and wrestle with it and flee to Jesus for help with it and for forgiveness for it. You'll begin to produce fruit. There is fruit in the life of the person who truly knows God. I so say, yes, God does preserve His people. I do believe once you're truly saved, you're always saved. And God does preserve His people, but God preserves His people by means. He preserves us by the means of grace. Uh, he, He preserves us through warnings. He warns us not to fall into unbelief, and those who are His will respond to those warnings. It's like there's a sign on the road that says, the sharp curve ahead. The people that don't respond to that warning, you're going to go off the cliff. But if you respond to the warning, you'll be kept safe. And so, if, if your life is fruitless, or if you're living in persistent, unrepentant sin, then this passage is meant to be a warning to you. And warnings are not pleasant. We all know that. But warnings are ultimately for our good. Uh, I think there's a couple things in here also that, that show us a couple of the symptoms of unbelief that we might look to. Just two things real quick. Notice in these religious leaders that they're dominated by the fear of man. They're dominated by the fear of man. Verse 32, they don't answer Jesus because they're afraid of the people. Verse 12, chapter 12, again, they fear the people. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus accuses the Pharisees of doing their religious deeds because of what other people thought about them. In other words, they did religion to gain the approval of other people. When when the fear of man is more dominant in your life than the fear of the Lord, it's a symptom of unbelief. That's a symptom of unbelief. Uh, secondly, see that they continually question Jesus' authority. 
verse 28, by whose authority are you doing these things? And that's one of the characteristics of unbelief is to question the authority of God's Word. Well, this was, y'all may have thought about this this way way back in the day, but times have changed and, and we're going to look at this differently now. In, in effect, what we tend to do is we replace the authority of God's Word with the authority of our own Word, which really is the original sin when you think about it. Adam and Eve said, well, I can decide for myself. I'm going to set myself up as the judge over what God has said instead of living in submission to what God has said. And so unbelief, that's what it looks like. It looks like me sitting in judgment over the Word of God. Belief looks like me living in humble submission to the Word of God. Uh, Unbelief looks like me buried in a maze of tunnels under the earth where it's completely dark saying, I'm going to figure my own way out of this. Belief looks like me crying out to God saying, I'm in a deep, dark tunnel. You show me. You've got to show me the way out. Don't presume on God's grace. Rest in God's grace. Don't presume on God's grace. Heed the warnings that He gives us in Scripture. Examine your life. Look for signs of fruit. Look for warning signals of unbelief. You do know i got to lighten things up a little bit. You do know statistically what the last word uh, of rednecks tend to be. Y'all know this? I know Jim Story knows this. Hold hold my beer and watch this. Hold my beer. You're going to say go Auburn? (laughs) Thank you. That's number two. Um, Y'all hold my beer and watch this. When when we look at the the warnings of God and we ignore them, it's like we're getting ready to say, y'all hold my beer and watch this. Because what we're about to do is, is not going to end well. It's not going to end well. In 1969, the chief of police, and I don't know if I'm going to say this town right, past Christian, where's John Wright? Past Christian, Mississippi, uh, Hurricane Camille was, was bearing down. And there was a party of people having a hurricane party holding their beer uh, 150 feet from the coast. And the chief of police came by and said, you guys really need to leave. And their reply was... This is my land. If you want me off, you'll have to arrest me. And he obviously wasn't going to arrest 25 people at that moment. So he went on and left them, and it did not turn out very well for that party. When we, when we don't heed warnings, when we don't heed warnings, um, there will be consequences. There will be consequences. We have to, to heed the warnings of God. We've seen God's desire for fruit. Uh, We've seen his kindness in continually sending people to us with his word, calling us to repentance. We've seen the warnings of what will be in store if we don't respond uh, to those pleas. Where's the hope for us in this? Where's the hope? Because certainly we've all been in Jean Valjean's shoes. We all feel like we've been the ones who've stuck the silver in our bag and snuck out the back door with it. We've been welcomed to the mill and then not responded appropriately to that kindness. Where's the hope for us? Look at verses 10 and 11. Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Uh, That's a quotation from Psalm 
118, and it's uh, referring to one of the stones that had been picked out to use in building Solomon's temple. And they looked at it and were like, nah, we're not going to use this stone. And they cast it aside. But then at the end of the day, that stone wound up being the chief cornerstone, the capstone, the main stone, the most important stone in building the temple. What's this saying to us? God sent his son. His son was rejected. But his son became the most important stone in the entire building. Even though these religious leaders rejected him, even though they killed him, God raised him from the dead. The rejected one was raised and becomes the most important stone in the whole building. Uh, in, In Romans 9, Paul uses the imagery this way. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is interesting imagery, isn't it? It's a stone of stumbling. It's a rock of offense. But at the same time, if you believe in him, you will not be put to shame. Jesus Jesus is either going to be to you a stumbling block or a shelter. There's, There's no two ways about it. There's no other way. There's no third way. Jesus is either going to be a stumbling block or he's going to be a shelter depending on how you respond to him. And so your only hope is to flee to Jesus, to come to Jesus for shelter, to find forgiveness in Him. Uh, In Les Mis, Jean Valjean is captured. He's returned to the bishop. The police officer is kind of explaining what happened. and, And the police officer says, he had the nerve to say that you gave this to him. And the bishop says, that's absolutely right. In fact, you left so early, I didn't have time to give you this. And he goes and he gets him two large silver candlesticks. And he gives those to Jean Valjean as well. And tells the policeman to release him. He gives him grace. And Jean Valjean says, what in the world? Why have I been given grace? Why have I been given forgiveness? I don't know what roads you've gone down. Maybe you're going down it right now. I don't know what sin and unbelief you may be trifling with, but if you return to Jesus, if you return to Jesus, I think you'll be surprised by His grace. I think you'll be surprised by His grace. Because whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that we would um, examine our lives, that we would be mindful of how kind you are to us in continually uh, calling us to yourself. I pray that we would not trifle with these warnings or presume upon your grace, but I pray we would be those who run to you for shelter. And in running to you for shelter, I pray that we would be surprised and overjoyed by your grace and your welcome to us. Uh, Father, work in hearts now. Cause us to turn from the things that entangle us and cause us to turn and find freedom and forgiveness in Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.